Before the show starts, I want to make an appeal to all you listeners that if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon. Not only will you help this podcast continue to move forward, you will now get a little something in return. You will join the table of ranks of the SRB empire. For a monthly contribution of $1 to $4, you will be given the rank of Collegiate Registrar and receive an SRB podcast refrigerator magnet. For $5 to $9, you'll be named the Collegiate Secretary and get an SRB podcast shot glass and all the privileges of lower ranks. For $10 to $24, you'll become a Collegiate Counselor and receive a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press and all the privileges of lower ranks. And for $25 or more, you'll be anointed a Chancellor and you will be sent a set of four SRB podcast shot glasses and all the privileges of other lower ranks. Join the table of ranks and help me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else by clicking on the Patreon button on seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As many listeners know, I've been doing a series of interviews related to the centennial of the Russian Revolution. And while there are many, many people to talk to, there is none better than Alexander Rabinowich. Rabinowich's trilogy on the Petrograd Bolsheviks are some of the best books on the revolution. But his second in the set, The Bolsheviks Come to Power, remains the definitive text challenging the idea of the Bolsheviks as a tight-knit, monolithic, conspiratorial organization, and October as a Bolshevik coup. Alexander Rabinowich is a professor emeritus of history at Indiana University, where he taught from 1968 until 1999, and an affiliated research scholar at the St. Petersburg Institute of History, part of the Russian Academy of Sciences, since 2013. He's the author of several studies on the Russian Revolutionary Era, including Prelude to Revolution, The Petrograd Bolsheviks, and the July 1917 Uprising, published by Indiana University Press. The Bolsheviks Come to Power, The Revolution of 1917 in Petrograd, published by Norton. And The Bolsheviks in Power, The First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd, published by Indiana University Press. Here's Alexander Rabinowich. So, the Russian Revolution has been with you I think it's safe to say your entire life, beginning with your parents and growing up in a Russian immigrant community yourself in the United States, which included some pretty prominent people. Uh, in an essay you wrote recently, you noted that Vladimir Nabokov, uh, Alexander Kerensky, and Boris Nikolevsky, among other people, were summer guests to your parents' house. So I, I thought we'd start by having you talk about your family history and your memories of the immigrant community and its influence on your study of the Russian Revolution. Sure. I was born in uh, London, England, uh, in, uh, with my twin brother in 1934. And for most of my life, and as far back as I can remember, 
we were always surrounded by Russians. Of course, I don't remember those London days because we left uh, when I was four years old uh, and my father immigrated uh, and my mother to, and the family uh, on the eve of the war. Uh, but I do remember, to some extent, the war years. My father was a uh, very prominent scientist. Uh, he was born in St. Petersburg. Uh, he was a physical chemist. He was a biologist and a poet, fancied himself an architect as well. Uh, always felt tied to to St. Petersburg, uh, wrote poetry about St. Petersburg, some which was published, talked about the revolution, uh, his experience of 1917 when he was a student at uh, St. Petersburg University when we were growing up. My mother was less political. She uh, was born in Jitomir in Ukraine, and they both immigrated from Russia in 19. 19- 18, around the time of the start of the Red Terror in Russia, uh, a good time for uh, for them to leave. Oh, they, my father always said that he wasn't a political and his family wasn't political at the time. He, They certainly were liberal and, and uh, my father hailed the coming of the revolution. Uh, I recall him talking with excitement about those days uh, when he was a student. He uh, he was taking a chemi- chemistry class, and he kept saying goodbye. Chemistry, as he uh, uh, was in some sort of a white guard that uh, helped police uh, St. Petersburg in, in 1917. So we, we were always surrounded by Russians. We spoke Russian at home. Uh, my, father, my twin brother and I learned Russian before English. I, I, I do remember my first sort of recollections. Uh, my dad got his first job at MIT. There, he, his, his closest friend and my mother's closest friend were the Karpovich family who lived in Cambridge. He was at Harvard. Karpovich was, the, I think, the father of Russian. It's generally acknowledged as uh, the father of uh, Russian studies in the United States, certainly Russian history. Uh, very, very, uh, didn't publish as much as he uh, might have, but was really prominent, had started some of the most important historical journals for Russian immigrants in Russian culture. And the Karpoviches uh, uh, had a, a large farm in southern Vermont, in the, in the mountains, in the Green Mountains, a beautiful, beautiful spot. They had maybe 150 acres, a lot of which was wood-covered. But every summer, uh, almost from the time we got there, that was kind of a gathering place for uh, for some of the most prominent people in the Russian immigration uh, in the East Coast of the United States, not just in Boston. Uh, and so uh, you mentioned Nabokov, I think, and uh, Karpovich and Boris Nikolaevsky. Uh, Boris Nikolaevsky was more at our place. I'll talk about that in a second. But there's just a lot of people. George Vernadsky, the uh, the historian, Fidotov, the religious historian, philosopher, Timoshev, the uh, the sociologist. All very very prominent people with their wives and with their family. I can recall in the book of uh, hunting butterflies ran after him. I wasn't big enough to hold a, a net at the time, but uh, but anyway, I, I I do remember those days well. I remember mushrooming in uh, in the mountains with these uh, people. And in terms of how it impacted my um, thinking, uh, there's no doubt that 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 
first stirred my interest in Russian history and Russian studies, although in a very amateurish way, but and in a mixed way. I mean, on the one hand, uh, I soaked it up, and and Russian history and Russian culture was a vague part of me, and more and more as I grew up. On the other hand, it was during the Cold War. I can remember uh, getting on a bus, a streetcar in Cambridge, and my mother speaking Russian, and me wanting to run to the back of the streetcar so nobody would know that we were Russian. So it was a mixed thing, but I suppose the, the biggest impact, I think, was that all of the Russians I knew had been forced to leave Russia or felt pressed to leave Russia. Some were forced out. They had been the losers in what, uh, in the way the the revolution had turned out in had had swung in October uh, 1917 with the coming of the Bolsheviks to power. They all saw Lenin and the Bolsheviks uh, as evil, as the incarnation of evil. They viewed the Bolshevik uh, seizure of power as a coup d'etat, well organized, but against the wishes of the bulk of the Russian population. And Lenin is most of all a masterful, uh, uh, and Trotsky, uh, masterful uh, leaders uh, and rigidly enforcing discipline that was which explained why they were so successful. Perhaps I'll backtrack a second. Two or three years after we started going to the Karpoviches uh, for the whole summers, my father bought uh, his own farm, which we still have in the family, a few miles away from the Karpoviches. And, uh, and we had our own guests there, some of whom were also very prominent. And that's where uh, Nikolaevsky spent every summer. He spent every summer in the second floor of our barn that still smelled of hay. And Vera Efron, uh, the, uh, the daughter of the family that owned the Brockhausi, that, that published the Brockhausi Efron uh, encyclopedia, the main Russian encyclopedia, was often there. And Iraqi Tsaratelli, uh, leading Menshevik, a Georgian Menshevik, uh, close to Nikolaevsky, uh, visited. And many displaced persons uh, from from the war period, some of whom had been involved with Vlasov. Uh, uh, Vlasov was a German uh, prisoner of war, a Russian uh, general who, uh, who uh, formed an army in the hope of uh, freeing Soviet Russia from Stalin. Anyway, um, so there are two uh, sort of uh, areas in southern Vermont that... Uh, that were a prominent uh, gathering place for Russians. So, Nimi, let's talk a bit about your your relationship with uh, Boris Nikolaevsky because he was a, a prominent Menshevik. He was the de facto historian of, of of one of the main historians of Russian social democracy, and he also, you know, served as a as a mentor for you. I think outside of your academic life, and also was really helpful in your research and in publishing your first book. So what kind of influence did he have on you and and how you approached the subject of the revolution? You know, there's some things that are a little bit incorrect in in a minor ways in what what you and what uh you just said. And, and Nikolaevsky uh Nikolaevsky was a was sort of an uncle. 
uh, he was a wonderful man. Uh, he didn't speak much English at all. You'd ask him at the table uh, to pass the butter, and he'd give you the salt. And he worked from morning till night. He uh, his only breaks came when he walked with to us with us to the village to get the mail, and he got ninety percent of the mail because he had a correspondence from all around the world. But he was part of what influenced me to study the Russian Revolution. But he didn't have the impact on me that some of my professors, uh, Leopold Hainson at the University of Chicago had, and John M. Thompson uh, at Indiana University. Um, Hainson, who was a professor of, of history and specialist in Russian labor history uh, and social history, and uh, uh, Thompson, who was a diplomatic historian, but a wonderful and a very inspirational teacher. Recent, sadly, recently died. They had a greater influence in me, uh, specifically in terms of my work. One of Nikolaevsky's main roles. I mean, he had been a, he had been a leading Menshevik in 1917, even though he was very young. He had known Lenin. Uh, he had walked out of the Second Congress of Soviets, uh, hand in hand, almost with Martov. Yuli Martov, uh, the leading Menshevik internationalist um, and uh, opponent of uh, Lenin's. Uh, so he was a political figure, um, and he published the uh, the leading Menshevik immigrant journal, the Socialistic Vesnik, for many, many, many years. So he, yeah, he was uh, an important scholar, but his mo- main contribution came uh, from the fact that he was the archivist of, uh, of the Social Democratic Movement. He had come into possession of the Marx archive, um, and it was... Um, there were efforts to get, Stalin made efforts to get it when, when Nikolaevsky was in Germany, uh, made efforts to uh, get it through Buharin to, uh, uh, that's, that's where that letter to an old Bolshevik uh, came from. And he had enormous, enormous library, most of which uh, was saved, hidden during World War II. Nikolaevsky managed to get to the United States. It was successfully hidden and then brought to the United States. Uh, so he, so I was often in his apartment uh, just off the Columbia campus, a large apartment. It, it, it was floor to ceiling books and manuscripts. Somehow he would find them, but they were sagging. And uh, he, he would advise me once in a while on bibliography but he didn't have. Uh, he, we just didn't talk much about my work, uh, or, or, or very limited. Maybe because I was so frantic about doing my research. I, I, I actually, I would say this. I, continually, I regret the fact that the people I knew are no longer with us, and that dates back to to the 1970s. I mean, I continue, Boris Ivanovich Nikolaevsky could have helped me with this. He would have known the answer to this. He would know where to get this. I say that today. And about uh, about uh, other people that I knew, unfortunately, they're not here, and I didn't draw on them as much as I could have or should have uh, when I could have. Did you, did, let me ask you about that, because you are, you are surrounded for a lot of your young life, you are surrounded with these people who experienced the revolution firsthand, who experienced the the difficulty of getting out of the country and being immigrants in, in in Europe and then the United States. Did you take that for granted to some extent, or did you not have the the consciousness at the time to maybe think, how can I 
like in terms of like recording these people, or or maybe this yeah, wasn't your part. Uh, I I was just too young. Yeah. Uh, really, uh, I have these vague memories. Uh, I have uh, I have a. I mean, I interviewed Kerensky uh, a couple of times, and so I have an image of him, and we uh, and have had conversations with him. He was the prime, the main prime minister of Russia for, and and the prime minister of the provisional government uh, when the Bolsheviks took power. Uh, but I, I, you know, from from my childhood days, I remember his shoes better than I do what he said because I was crawling under the table. Right, right, of course. Of course. Um, so you begin your dissertation at Columbia under the great historian uh, Leopold Hameson, um, who I no, no, you didn't. Oh, I thought you you worked with, but you worked with Leopold Hameson. I got my MA at the University of Chicago uh, when Le- Leopold Hameson was there. Leo Hameson, and uh, at the time I went uh, to uh, to the University of Chicago, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had finished Knox College. Uh, I had a two-year commitment as an ROTC officer in the Army. Uh, I got my MA while I was waiting to go in the Army, and I did my work with uh, Hameson. And he, he in major ways turned my life around, and I'm eternally grateful to him for, uh, to him for it. But I did my uh, work on my, my doctoral work under John Thompson in Indiana. And what happened was, uh, by the time I got out of the Army, uh, Hameson was already at Columbia. Uh, I got a good fellowship offer from Indiana, and I took it. Well, so you you do have these influences, and you set off to do a dissertation on the Russian Revolution, and your dissertation eventually becomes your first book, Prelude the Revolution, the Petrograd Bolsheviks, and the July 1917 Uprising. Now, instead of going through all your books one by one, I want to get your general, you know, you've written this trilogy over the last, you know, several decades about the Russian Revolution. What are some of your main takeaways that uh, one should get from your work uh, in reading these books? And, And how did working on the history of the revolution change your understanding of it based on your earlier ex- personal experiences with, with people you were growing, growing up around? Well, I was so take, had been so taken by Tseretelli and uh, was so uh, negatively, um, uh, negatively uh, uh, sort of uh, influenced against the revolution, against everything Soviet, that my first choice for a doctoral dissertation was a biography of Tseretelli. And I quickly bogged down because I didn't know George, and and, and a, a lot of his formative experiences were only available in Georgian sources. And it so happened that uh, Philip Mosley, a very very distinguished, uh, he was a, a le- leading diplomat. Uh, he was a leading historian. He was really, I think, the founder of uh, Russian studies or one of the founders at Columbia University. He was director of the Russian Institute at Columbia University. Uh, and he, he was very, very close to immigrants. He was also, uh, he, he was one of the real uh, fathers of Russian studies, the founders and builders of Russian studies in the United States behind the grants that the Ford Foundation put into Russian studies, et cetera. And he had happened on the campus, uh, Indiana campus, uh, at the invitation, I think, of Bob Burns. And he, uh, I told him of my dilemma with Saratelli, and he said, well, why not 
study uh, Ceratelli in 1917. So I did, and as I got into the newspapers and into the sources that were available into the United States, I quickly became fascinated by um, the history of Bolshevism in Petrograd and the picture that emerged from the sources that I was looking at were radically, radically different from what I was getting from uh, immigrant memoirs, from uh, what I had gotten from Karamsky, what I had gotten in a vague sense from uh, from Nikolaevsky and from what I heard secondarily uh, from the people around me since I had, was a kid. And so, uh, and, and one of the subjects that seemed most interesting was the July uprising, so which was uh, had been a historical puzzle. Um, I, I felt I had resolved it, uh, but it took uh, months and months of very close research in primary sources, and that sort of started me uh, once I had published a book which had Prayer to Revolution, the Petrograd Bolsheviks, and the July Uprising, um, and it had been quite a big success in this country. In Russia, I was considered Soviet Russia I was considered a bourgeois falsifier, but but here I, I really got a warm reception, and and I really got intrigued by the history of the revolution and the new things I was finding out about it. So then I went on to the October Revolution and did my second book, The Bolsheviks Come to Power. And I I finished that book. Uh, This was subsequently the first uh, book on the Russian Revolution by a Western historian published uh, in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev. I finally was out from under the nickname, the, the suggestion that I was a falsifier. But that October book and the July book reflected an image of the Bolshevik Party and of the revolution and of the Bolshevik success in radically different ways uh, than had been the case before. There was, a, there seemed to be, a, for old school historians, for the traditional view, for the immigrant-influenced view, there's a, there was a straight line between the uh, uh, narrow uh, coup d'etat and centrally uh, organized by Lenin and the Stalinist dictatorship. Uh, but that, that wasn't true for me because I had seen October as, in a very real sense, a reflection of popular sentiments uh, of the Bolshevik Party, not as a, as a, um, a narrow conspiratorial party, but as a mass party uh, that had very popular slogans and programs, and that was successful uh, because it had linkages in factories and in uh, military units and among Baltic Baltic fleet sailors, and uh, because its slogans, all part of the Soviets, peace, land, and bread, were immensely, immensely popular. They seemed to uh, ordinary Russians, in Petrograd at least, as best reflecting uh, their needs and their aspirations and their best bet for uh, for realizing them. Uh, but that that created a problem because because how was one then one to explain how uh, how Soviets were so quickly turned into uh, secondary institutions ruled by the party and uh, how Soviet Russia became centralized and authoritarian a party ruled state so relatively quickly and so that led me to my my next book uh, the Bolsheviks in power. Uh, the first year of Soviet rule in Petrograd, and and my present study on um, 
on uh, the Petrograd Bolsheviks survive Petrograd during the uh, the Civil War, and so July led to where I am now. And uh, I often I, I often wish I had somehow freed myself and done some other things, but there it is. Let me ask you about that too, in the sense of so your your first book. When was the first time you did research in the Soviet Union, and what was your experience like there? I had gotten married to my wife of uh, 53, four years in 1963, 62, 63. And she was also in Russian history. We had met at a Quaker seminar. Uh, and uh, uh, anyway, the two of us uh, went uh, on one of the early exchanges to the Soviet Union in 1963-64. The exchange had been going on for uh, for a few years by then, but it, but relatively speaking, it were it was the early phase of of the exchange, uh, and it was uh, during the Khrushchev era, the last year of Khrushchev's uh, reign as general secretary of the Communist Party and leader of uh, the Soviet government. We we had a wonderful experience. It started out very very sadly, relatively sadly. Uh, but but with an episode that uh, was reflective of the situation then. Uh, we were living in the dorm at MGU. Uh, word came that uh, Kennedy had been assassinated. Actually, we first found out that Kennedy had been assassinated when we saw a big banner on our dorm, uh, on the building. Uh, the Russian students had already um, uh, had already written our sympathies to our American guests. Or something like that, and we were surrounded by by love. Really, uh, I don't want to be naive about it. I'm not sure uh, that was by any means true of everybody. And but it, but anyway, we did find an awful lot of people who became very dear friends who 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 lived with us in the dorm. And we did find a, uh, during that period, the Khrushchev era, quite a bit of receptivity uh, among students and and to some extent scholars in in. Um, in Russia. Uh, we had no access to archives. We had been warned by security personnel in the embassy to be careful and uh, that we were being listened to and all sorts of things, and perhaps we were, and probably we were, but we didn't feel it, and uh, we developed close relationships uh, with Russians and had a very, very productive year. I, I really think that uh, that year made my career in the sense that I, I was able to use sources that were little used and that provided uh, the insights that were the key to understanding the July uprising. So you have the you're working on a fourth book uh, during the to, to Petrograd Bolsheviks in the Civil War. And and looking back on your three books and then also the book you're working now and, and when you reflect on, on your work as a historian of the revolution, how do you understand what your intellectual project has been? And, and what would you do differently if you could? I'm not sure I would do anything differently. I had, I had drawn from Hameson and Thompson a love of historical research. A belief that while any uh, historical research uh, years after the time, uh, uh, you know, you might try to be objective and you can try to be 
uh, to do sort of a photograph, but you can't ever do it. But to the degree that you could find sort of mutually uh, supporting uh, evidence, and the more evidence, uh, the better, and the different kinds of evidence, the closer you could come. And and so uh, it was a thrill. It was a uh, it was kind of a detective work that uh, I really came to to love. And then when it was appreciated by reviewers at Mike Guggenheim or an Institute for Advanced Study or whatever, uh, recognizing uh, some value in the work that I was producing, it just turned me on to uh, to trying to go further um, and to answer uh, to help answer the implications of the work I'd done. Now, there have been many, many, many books about the Russian Revolution over the decades. And what, what kind of questions of personal interest to you, you feel remain unresolved? Uh, you know, uh, there has been some of, the, some of the most significant holes in research have started to be filled uh, in the revolution in the provinces uh, the histories of uh, other parties, gender history, women's history, has started to be filled. Sadly, uh, the, the political history of the Bolsheviks, there's been an assumption, I don't think I've ever been very successful, because I think there's the, the, the idea that, that the revolution was a coup is still very strong in this country, and maybe it's stronger now, and uh, uh, and it uh, is certainly strong in Russia. The most ridiculous kinds of ideas are floating around now, and we can talk yeah. about it if you want but later. But um, there there have huge volumes of documents have been published on other political parties, but not the Bolsheviks. And a lot of the material that we have is incomplete and distorted by comments and uh, but uh, and a lot of a lot an awful lot is not published and so uh, i would say just in a general way what do we need to study we need to study everything uh, we really need to redo all the work uh, because there my experience is that there's an enormous amount of fresh information little used information that hasn't been used and um, that is vitally important for understanding the process. And without understanding what the revolution was, uh, you can't begin to learn uh, the le uh, lessons from it. Some, uh, some uh, people are interested in, in lessons from it because, um, and some people that I'm, I'm close friends with, because it is for the instruction and, and uh, for, for the insights that give into making revolution. They're, they are revolutionaries. They're Marxists. I'm not. Uh, and so for me, the value of, of my work to me, uh, if we want to look at it in a contemporary political sense, is what the revolution shows, what the lessons are uh, of the revolution uh, have for people that want to avoid revolution. To me, the lesson is that we need to uh, resolve fundamental political, social, and economic issues, uh, the needs of uh, people generally, if we are going to avoid revolutions and revolutions in uh, on a scale as they occurred in Russia uh, are just profoundly dangerous. We 
we see from the Russian experience what happened. It's, it's far, far better, it seems to me, uh, to resolve them um, uh, before they reach revolutionary stage. But to understand that, you have to understand the revolution. Right, because you, you, you said we have, you have to understand what the revolution was about. What, what, is, what was the revolution in, through, in what you've you know, been studying for decades? What would you say the revolution was about? People wanting a better life a part of, of uh, well, it, to some extent, survival. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, to overcome poverty, uh, to, to, have, to have the opportunity to better themselves, to have an opportunity to, to reach their, their highest poss- personal possibilities. Now, you've naturally been in high demand of late. You know, you've been participating in in numerous conferences and lectures and interviews, both here in the United States and abroad, and you've been traveling a lot to Russia. So what has your experience been like in in reevaluating the Russian Revolution 100 years later? What kind of things do you find audiences interested in? What kind of questions do they ask you? Well, just recently, I spent a week in Russia, uh, in Moscow, and I'm I'm going to uh, to Saint Petersburg for a month and a half uh, on Sunday, uh, and I'll be participating in some conferences and giving some uh, talks. In in Moscow, I was struck by the absolutely crazy questions I was being asked. You know. Uh, uh, was there a February Revolution? Is it true that, that everything was great in Russia in February and it was the generals or the masons or, or, uh, or, or the intelligentsia that, that caused the revolution? And this, uh, this to some extent, is being uh, encouraged. The idea that, that the empire, uh, imperial Russia, was strong and that is where Russian, Russia's future lies, I think, is being encouraged uh, by uh, by by the regime, which really cannot just ignore the the revolution, and so it is uh, helping fund serious scholarly conferences, but at a popular level, uh, that's not what's happening, and crazy things are being published, crazy things are being said, and these lead uh, to uh, crazy questions. I don't want to go too far with that, because the people that tend to go to my talks or to these conferences are, are bright and special. But I certainly get that as I read about popular thought in newspapers and in some of the questions that I, uh, I get. And then what about amongst within the scholarly community? What, what kind within of thing- the scholar, scholarly community, I think uh, there is an interest in the revolution and a desire uh, to study it, but it's really limited. I think, I think, and and certainly, um, and it's fairly strong in in the um, in the Academy of Sciences in Moscow and and Petersburg, particularly Petersburg, maybe. But it, it, the subject has been so politicized for so long that the expectation that many of us had when the Soviet Union crumbled, that there would be a, a drive to learn more about the revolution in Russia just hasn't materialized to this day. And so that you just can't sort of gin up for a centennial and, and, and start saying really important and interesting things. Some people do because they, they're among the few that have worked on it, but not to the extent 
uh, one would expect. There's a tremendous contrast, uh, for one thing, between celebration of uh, the November 7th uh, holiday, Revolution Day, in the Soviet Union, or in even uh, in beginning in, well, beginning in 1918 in Soviet Russia, um, and today uh, uh, there's a huge contrast between uh, celebration of uh, Victory Day, uh, which is uh, May 9th, I'll, I'll be there for it, in St. Petersburg, all this, uh, all the main streets will be closed. Hundreds of thousands of people will be demonstrating and 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 marching about. Uh, I doubt if there'll be much in the way of protest. Maybe I'm wrong um, uh, on that day, as uh, so it was in May Day, because uh, many Russians feel really strongly about that day, much much more so than than they do about uh, May Day, and certainly more so than they do about November seventh now. Do you get the impression that one of the looking at the the memory of the revolution and and its commemoration this year from the level of say the Russian government do you th- you know there's some obvious reasons why they would not really want to commemorate the revolution because that's the collapse of the you know you know the the imperial regime and that could you know give too many ideas for the collapse of the current regime but but do you also think that one of the problems that they have is a problem of narrative you know, how do you narrativize the 1917 in the long history of a Russian history from the vantage point of the government? I guess I think that's really uh, secondary, hugely secondary. I think the colored revolutions has a huge impact. They see, uh, you know, what comes of revolution, what uh, uh, what what has come in many many cases of revolution and and you see that actually I mean you see that in Europe today and you see that uh, in the United States uh, uh, kind of a kind of a, a, a drive for uh, for stability you certainly see it in the French elections uh, um, uh, I think I think those influences and uh, and uh, the influence of the church and the church is a uh, orthodox church is a bulwark of the regime uh, and a desire to stay in power that is much more significant than uh, trying to control um, the narrative and and finally uh, you've called the october revolution arguably the single most important historical development of the 20th century and and i don't think that's that controversial i think many most people would accept that so you've already spoken a, a little bit about, say, the legacy in the sense of, you know, needing to deal with or address people's um, social status and, and poverty and frustrations. In addition to that, how do you understand its legacy today? Well, its result was to stifle any form of democracy in Russia for, uh, for the better part of a century it resulted in the ultimate coming to power, although I don't think it was inevitable or or for for ordained um, Stalin uh, and the Stalinist terror. It led to the industrialization of uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, but at the same time, uh, it it helped bring uh, Hitler to power as a bulwark against Bolshevism. It uh, stimulated revolutions, which admittedly weren't successful in the aftermath of October all around the world until about 1920, 21. It led to the, it was, there's a direct link between it and Cold War. 
and its uh, legacy uh, we still uh, see today in the hostility, uh, I think, uh, in the sort of uh, inbred hostility uh, towards Russia among many Americans, I think much more than uh, I sense uh, than towards China. And and to some extent among Russians, um, although a lot of the hostility now is fostered by by the propaganda that comes from the government, but there's still there's there's uh, there's still at a at a popular level. I'm not talking about scholars now, and I'm not talking primarily about uh, natives of St. Petersburg and Moscow, where there's always been a friendliness towards uh, towards us and Westerners, uh, but. Um, but at a at a popular level, I think I'm not directly familiar with it. But uh, but in the provinces in the countryside, uh, where uh, where old ideas from the uh, from the Soviet days are probably much stronger than they uh, remain much stronger than they do in in urban uh, areas. There's a hostility that from from those Soviet days. So all that is part of the legacy. It seems to me. That was Alexander Rabinowitz, Professor Emeritus of History at, at Indiana University, where he taught from 1968 until 1999, and Affiliated Research Scholar at the St. Petersburg Institute of History, part of the Russian Academy of Sciences, since 2013. He's the author of several studies on the Russian Revolutionary Era, including Prelude to Revolution, the Petrograd Bolsheviks and the July 1917 Uprising, published by Indiana University Press, The Bolsheviks Come to Power, the Revolution of 1917 in Petrograd, published by Norton, and The Bolsheviks in Power, The First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd, published by Indiana University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Oh man.